Do you all remember where you were 15 years ago this morning? It's kind of seared into our memories. If we were old enough 15 years ago to be adult enough, I suppose, to really form memories, it's just kind of like, where were you when John Kennedy was shot? I don't remember that one. A little too young for that, but I certainly remember 15 years ago. I remember that uh, the phone rang at about 6 a.m. and uh, woke Marion and me, and at 6 a.m., who's calling, and uh, picked up the phone, and it was my friend George in Chicago, and he was saying, turn on the TV, turn on the TV. I said, what channel? Any channel. You know, I turn on the TV, and there's that shot of the, the Twin Towers with the left one billowing out that black smoke against that perfect blue sky. And I'm watching this thing, and I'm not really comprehending. I just think, okay, there's a fire at the Twin Towers. And all of a sudden, out of the right frame comes this shape in, and sort of just disappears into the, the right-hand tower and then the ball of flame that blew up. And I remember I couldn't quite comprehend what had just happened. It just didn't make any sense to me. You know, and they played it over and over and over again, of course, in that loop. And the fact that that was a jetliner going into a building, you know, I just couldn't quite grasp it. I remember the day kind of rolled up. I had an early morning meeting at a local restaurant. And, of course, that was a topic of everybody's conversation. But I'm kind of going through the day. And it wasn't really sinking in, I think, that day or the next few days. And I remember I'm, I'm driving and I heard on a radio broadcast the number 400, that 400 firefighters had been killed. And that number just kind of blew my mind. It just took my breath away. I couldn't even comprehend 400 firefighters dying. I think the number eventually was a little lower, but, you know, 400 firefighters? It just just didn't make any sense to me. And I remember in the ensuing weeks and and a couple months, though, all the banners started appearing on freeway overpasses. And for that short period of time, though, I remember feeling like Americans united, like we were all together, united under one banner. And the things that have separated us and the things that we fight about incessantly, suddenly for a moment we're just kind of blown to the sides and there was this this connection. But it's just seared into us now, seared into our memory, these things that have happened. And we're not the same anymore, are we? Think of everything that these attacks put in motion. On the macro level, on the national level, obviously it triggered a recession. The Dow Jones and all the stock exchanges shut down for six days, and when they reopened, they were like 700 points lower. And it triggered a worldwide recession that took years to recover from, at least partially. It triggered regulation like we can't. We have the TCA now. We have Homeland Security now. We have all these things in place now. You know, we're much less free now in trying to stave off another attack in this way. And so it really changed the infrastructure of our country. And then, of course, it triggered a war. And our troops are still over there. They still haven't come home completely in 15 years. That's just on the macro level. When you move down to the micro level, the numbers are kind of staggering. There are over 1,600 people. The number I have here is 1,609 1,609 people who lost their spouse or lost a partner in the attacks. 
There were over 3,000 children who lost their parents, or at least one parent in the attack. And the number I heard that's an estimate is that over 20% of the entire population of the United States knew someone who was hurt or killed in the attack. Over 20%. I mean, this thing touched so many people personally. And think about the journeys they got kicked into. Think about the cycle of grief they got kicked into. What actually was happening? Because each one of those numbers I just quoted is a person. A person set on a journey by an event that they had completely no control over. We talk about this sometimes as a hero's journey, as a rite of passage. And I know we've talked about those in before, here before, but they're so central. If we're going to talk about how we move through difficult times, nationally, personally, if we're going to talk about how we move through any of the difficulties that we face in life, we have to talk in terms of a rite of passage or a hero's journey. And a rite of passage is something that we don't really have in our culture anymore today. And it's really a shame, especially for young men, because they need rites of passage. But there are three main sections of a true rite of passage. Not just a first haircut or a baby's first tooth, first tooth that comes out, but a true rite of passage incorporates first separation. So the person is separated from their familiar world. The person is separated from everything that they know, everything that gives them a sense of security, and they move into a phase of transition. At the end of the transition, if they complete the tasks that are given them, then they can be reincorporated back into the community, but not the same person anymore. Because of the transition, they have moved into a new place. And so the young boy who goes walkabout is taken away from his... his uh, parents, all the women and the children in the village and taken by the men into the bush and he needs to go walk about up to six months alone in the bush, in the wilderness, finding his own way, learning how to survive, seeing if what he has learned in terms of the song lines and the chants and the wisdom of his tribe and also the physical skills have sunk in enough so that he can survive that and come back and when he is brought back into the community, it's now with the recognition with the rights and with the responsibilities of a man instead of a boy. And so think about this in terms of what we just talked about. Someone losing a spouse, children losing their parents, people losing friends. Of course, any grief, any loss triggers a rite of passage, triggers a hero's journey, but this was intense. And so in terms of that, we think about this, this way through because things happen in life that take us someplace that we didn't know we were going to go. The hero's journey is usually triggered by a wounding or maybe a deep-set desire, a longing for something that is not currently present, or it could be an outside incident like a plane flying into a building. But it generates a call to a whole new world that we don't understand, the rules are different, that we have to negotiate and navigate we're given tasks to complete before we can come back and reincorporate. But it's our choice whether we answer the call or not. Because events like this, events like 9-11, events like some of the things that you all are going through right here now, are intense enough that they have the power to truly transform us, change us from the bottom up, or to destroy us and to break us down. 
And whichever happens in a person's life is up to that person themselves. Will they answer the call? Will they move out of the comfortable place, the familiar place, the place that they know, into this new world? Or will they regress? Will they come back again? You know, this purpose of this process of healing, this process of transformation, how do we do it? How do we get from here to there? How do we use the crises that we face in our lives to move us, to use them as catalyst, as motivation, to move us into the next stage of growth? As I was thinking about this, there are clues in the Bible, of course, if not outright statements. But one of them comes from the Old Testament. And in 586 BC, or BCE for you scientists out there, the armies of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and deported much of the population. Actually, that was the culmination of a lot of skirmishes and wars and, and semi-deportations, but this was the big one, where Jerusalem was completely destroyed, utterly destroyed. Solomon's temple, just the jewel of the Middle East, was destroyed as well, and then the people were forced marched into Babylon. You want to talk about devastation? You want to talk about desolation? What we, in comparison, I suppose, suffered at 9-11 was a pinprick compared to having your entire civilization wiped out. Everything that you know wiped out. It's as if you lived in Manhattan and the entire island was wiped out, along with Washington, D.C., and all the monuments and all of the facilities of power. Everything wiped out that we hold dear. It's hard to imagine what that would be like. Europe felt that during World War II, where entire countries were devastated, entire cities were devastated. Thank God we haven't experienced that. But we know something of it, and these people knew something of it. And about 50 years later, when the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians and Cyrus the Great started to allow the Jews to come home again, the first thing they wanted to do was rebuild their temple. And Zerubbabel was the one who actually laid the foundation. And it said right in the scriptures that the people who came back, because not everybody came back from Babylon, that was their answer to another call. And some of them didn't. Some of them stayed in Babylon because it was much easier there. Everything is civilized. Everything is set. To go back to the devastation of their homeland and to try to rebuild was a difficulty that some people just didn't want to take on. But as the foundations for the temple were being relayed, Those who are old enough and remember Solomon's temple wept. They wept because it was such a shadow of the former glory of their nation. But the temple was rebuilt. And it wasn't until 50 years later when Nehemiah comes back from Babylon that they start working on rebuilding the walls so that the city has its fortifications, has its defenses, and can really call itself a city again. And when the walls were finally rebuilt, there was a celebration day at the new moon where the celebrations were held on the seventh year. And all the people were called together within the walls and Nehemiah and Ezra and many of the Levites stood before them to read them the law. And you have to understand that for three generations, maybe four generations in Babylon, they hadn't heard their own law. They hadn't heard the scriptures read to them. And the scriptures are read to these people and they're being interpreted by the priests and they're being brought into the understanding of the people. And again, they weep. Why did they weep? Maybe because of what was lost, the former glory again. Maybe it was guilt over what they had done 
to cause the devastation as they understood it. But they're weeping. And if you take a look at the quote from Nehemiah, Nehemiah and the leaders react interestingly, differently than you would expect. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And there's a line, of course, which is one of the most famous and important in all of Scripture. The joy of the Lord is our strength. They were commanded to celebrate. In the midst of their grief, in the midst of their mourning, they were commanded to celebrate. Eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, party. Reinvigorate your life. Immerse back into the life. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You know, we can build, rebuild walls. We can rebuild buildings, and we've done that. You know, Lower Manhattan is beautiful again. But what does it all mean? What good is it if there is no joy in our lives? If we're still living as if that were yesterday. If we're still living as if the pain is still victimizing us. The process of healing, the process of transformation has to do with this maintaining the joy of the Lord in some way. It must do that. There's a movie that I've been intrigued with lately. I don't know, some movies I can watch over and over again. I don't know how you are, but there's some movies that just take me to a place and I just want to go there again and again. And this movie I didn't expect. It's called The Martian. And um, there have been so many movies about manned space flight to Mars. I'm thinking, okay, here's another one. It's going to involve aliens and monsters and, and you know, green fuzz on the ground that eats you. I don't know. It's going to be something like that. And so I kept going past it and going past it and going past it. I wasn't going to watch it. And then I found out it was directed by Ridley Scott, and I'll watch anything that Ridley Scott does. So next time it came up, I started somewhere in the middle, and I ended up watching it to the end. And I wasn't prepared how funny it was. It was like a really funny movie. And so that intrigued me. And so when I'd go by it, I'd try to watch parts I hadn't seen before, and I'm watching more and more. And eventually I sort of saw the whole movie pieced together the way you do when you watch it on cable, you know? But what I realized about this movie that really intrigued me was that it wasn't about aliens and it wasn't about emotions. What it was about was problem solving. It was about what is the process of getting through a difficult time. If you don't know the story at all, you know, it's, it's kind of the same sort of plot. The, uh, the crew, uh, man crew goes to Mars and due to a storm, one of the crew members, the botanist, is presumed dead and they end up leaving him there. But he's not dead and he wakes up. And there he is stranded on Mars and he knows there is not another scheduled space flight for four years. And even though all the other crew members are gone, he doesn't have rations to get him anywhere near that. But he's a botanist, right? And so he starts right into the process of starting thinking through the problem and what he's going to do and how he's going to survive. But it's the way he does it that has started to intrigue me because he never lost his sense of adventure. He never lost his sense of, of daring and fun or his sense of humor through the entire process. And I don't know how any of us would do, even trained astronauts in that sort of situation, figuring you're probably going to die. But as a botanist, the first thing he did was figure, 
he better start growing something. And he had some potato seeds, and so he started growing potatoes. And he pulled in Martian soil, and he pulled all the excrement, because, you know, they have them in sealed bags, so that's his fertilizer. And he figures out how to get sort of a terrarium effect by burning hydrogen and this and that and creating water, oxygen. I don't know how he was doing it, but he was sciencing it all the way through. And and he's got this crop of, of potatoes starting to grow. And then he declares that he is the greatest botanist on the entire planet. (laughs) I'm the greatest botanist. (laughs) That sense sense of fun that he has, you know, doing that. Okay, so then he's he's growing, he's he's the greatest botanist, and he's growing his his potatoes. And um, then the next thing that happens is that he realizes that through reading about, you know, just uh, the the law between nations on the planet Earth, that, that as soon as you grow crops... You have actually colonized. So now he's the one who colonized Mars, you see. He's the greatest botanist, and now he's colonized Mars. And then he realizes that what he's got to do, and he's now established communications with the Earth, he's got to get to where they have already dropped the lander for the next space flight that has all the you know, supplies and everything in it. And he's got to travel over 3,000 kilometers to get there. And he realizes that, you know, inside his space ship inside the hab as they call it that's owned by nasa that's owned by the united states but as soon as he steps onto martian soil he's basically in international waters so he's going to travel over international waters and commandeer another ship without any permission which makes him a space pirate (laughs) so he is now mark watney space pirate (laughs) and then he realizes as he's making this long trip that he is the first person, he is entirely alone on an entire planet, and he's the first person to ever do that. And everything he does, he's the first. You know, he steps out of the rover, he's the first person to do this. He climbs that hill, he's the first person to do that. Everything he does is a first. And he tells, as he's communicating with the crew, he tells them, you know, I can just go out, I can sit on a hill, and I can just watch the horizon, because I can. And he takes the time to do that. And, of course, the Martian landscape, although barren, is just gorgeous. Scott knows how to make pictures. He's the first person on an entire planet entirely alone. And then when he has to finally take off and meet the the rest of the crew as they have turned around and come back from him in orbit, they have to lighten the ship to get him in a high enough orbit, basically have to take the whole thing apart. And he's not sure he can even survive that. But he will be the person who has gone the fastest in the history of space travel, and he likes that a lot. When he finally gets into space and they're too far apart and he can't get there, he cuts a hole in, his, uh, in, the, in the hand of his pressure suit and he tries to you know, use that and finally gets close enough and then he says that he gets to fly around like Iron Man. You know, It's just one thing after another with him one thing after another, where he still sees the humor, he still sees the, the adventure, he still sees the connection as he's solving one problem after another. And I put a little speech that he gives at one point in the movie, and I wanted to read it to you because I think it's germane to where we're going with this. He said, when I was up there, stranded by myself, did I think I was going to die? Yes, absolutely. And that's what you need to know going in because it's going to happen to you. This is space. It does not cooperate. At some point, everything is going to go south on you. 
everything is going to go south and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now, you can either accept that or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. You do the math. You solve one problem. Then you solve the next one. And then the next one. And if you solve enough problems, you get to come home. It's all about taking the next indicated step. It's all about dealing with the fear and dealing with the emotions that are present and then just moving into the next indicated step and the one after that. And I think what he exemplifies, it's all about taking a larger view of yourself as well. Seeing yourself on this journey, this hero's journey, this rite of passage, seeing you on that circuit as part of something that's larger than yourself. So that you can see that the roles that you play are part of that passage. The milestones that you cross are part of that passage. The difficulties that you face are the tasks that you must complete in order to complete this passage. If we're really going to understand how we go through this, we see that all of this, taking the next indicated step, seeing this as part of a journey that has a purpose, has a shape to it, is what allows us to maintain the joy of the Lord as we're doing the things that we're doing so that we can say we're space pirates too in the midst of the thing that we think is maybe going to take our breath away. How do you do both at the same time? This is the question we all have. And learning from the Martian and from Nehemiah, how do we work through difficult times? You know, I think there are three aspects, three A's, if you will, that we need to take a look at to see how we need to do this, how we can do this ourselves. And the first one is awareness. Awareness. Seeing ourselves on our own journey. Being aware of that larger picture. You know, the roles and the milestones, the tasks and the problems as part of this whole, this rite of passage. How being in this position is the transition that we need to take so that when we come back home again, if we solve enough problems, that we are not the same person that returns as the one that left. We have something more. We have a depth. We have an insight. We have a boon or a gift that we can give to the people that we return to. 9-11 began a rite of passage for so many of us. Began a hero's journey for so many of us. For the nation as well as for us as individuals. But each wounding in our life, each trauma in our life, or maybe just our desire for something that we don't have in life, or just an intense event that happens to us that we have no control over, is calling us to a journey, is calling us to solve another problem, to see that we are taking another cycle. And of course, the hero's journey refers to the cycle from birth to death, from the security and the complacency of the child being kicked out into the world of the adult in adolescence and young adulthood, facing down the adult world, completing the tasks that need to be completed so that we can circle back around at our point of death. But that's not just the big cycle that confronts us in life. There are cycles within cycles within cycles. Each time something occurs to us, it kicks us into another cycle Another hero's journey, another rite of passage. Some of you are dealing with drug addiction and alcoholism. Maybe some of you are in rehab right now and are part of this gathering. That's a hero's journey. That's a rite of passage. 
You've been separated from the world that you knew, thrown into another world that has different rules, different ways of doing things, stuff that you're not familiar with. Guides and helpers come. You have tasks that you have to complete. And if you do all that, if you keep true to that, when you go back home again, you will not be the same person. Some of you have been diagnosed with cancer. Some of you are diagnosed with cancer right now. That is kicking you into the same sort of cycle, a world that you had no idea how to deal with, and you're trying to figure that out. Losing a job can do the same thing. A death of a loved one, of course, does the same thing. A divorce can do the same thing. And these are just the negative ones because it goes the other way too. You get a new job. You get married. There's a birth in your family. Every one of those is kicking you into a world where you don't understand. Especially birth, your first child. You have no idea how that's going to take you in a new direction until you've actually tried to do it. There is no preparation for that. You move into it. All of these are calls to a cycle of a rite uh, right of passage or another journey within the journey. And if we can be seeing ourselves on this journey, on this way, capital W, that Jesus talks about, then we can start to become aware of the patterns. We can start to become aware of the passage as we go through it. And we can start to become aware of the purpose that we have in completing this journey. And it's interesting, as, as you do that, what seemed to be random events before start to become part of a larger piece. You start to see them fitting into places in your life. You see how even the most difficult things in your life yielded something that was absolutely necessary for the next thing that you faced or the next relationship that you had. And you see how all this starts to connect, no longer random, but part of a larger tapestry And you start to become personally purposeful in what you do, in what you choose, and the attitude that you bring to your life. See, if we can accept, if we can embrace all of the things that happen to us, become aware, that's when we can start to have this joy return. We can look in the mirror and say we're space pirates too as we do this. We can have that kind of connection. And that brings us to the second of the three A's. The second one is acceptance. Awareness and acceptance. And this is acceptance of conditions on the journey as they are. Not as we think they should be. Not with a sense of victimization that something is wrong. But accepting things as they are. This is no longer seeing ourselves as cursed or victimized. We start to see ourselves as heroes in this plot, in this this journey of our lives. No longer passive victims, but active players with purpose and intent. Now, we've been talking a lot about contemplative life and contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer is the practice of awareness. If you are doing centering prayer, if you are meditating, if you are going offline to try to clear your thoughts, like we hope so many of you are doing, that's the practice of awareness, becoming completely aware of this present moment without being distracted, past, future, and all that stuff that floats around in our head. And so practicing awareness that way is preparing us for that first aspect that we need to get through the difficulties. There's another prayer that's called the welcoming prayer. And I don't know if any of you have heard of that one. But that's the practice of acceptance. 
And it doesn't happen offline. It happens online. It happens in the midst of being triggered. It happens in the midst of the difficult things that are happening during your day that are taking you emotionally sideways. Because emotions keep us from seeing that larger picture, seeing that larger journey. They cover us over. They bring us down into this focal point that is not real. Because the emotion isn't real. It doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of the moment. It's just what we're feeling at the time. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't have any control over your feelings. Did you know that? You do not control your feelings. They come, they go, they do whatever they want. You can no more change your feelings than you can change the weather. You can't do it. Now, this may fly in the face of what you've been told or what you believe. In fact, I was just talking to someone last week who said, I have never heard anyone say that before. And this poor lady had such guilt over the feelings that she was feeling. But she had no control over that. None of us do. They overtake us, they come unbidden, and they go. We can't control them. But what we can do is control our actions that would be a response to those feelings. And if we control those actions enough times in a given direction, then the buttons go away. And the emotions don't come back. The triggers go away. But how do you deal with those emotions? How do you channel them in a way that allows you to do that opposite action, to create the awareness, to get the opposite action that is going to change your basic default position with those emotions? I wanted to read you just a little bit about this welcoming prayer because it can really help us. It can help us in real time. So the welcoming prayer. If you're struggling with a bad feeling, the power of this little method is that it offers a structured way to embrace and to accept it. There's our second key word, accept. So you can release it and move on. There are three phases to the welcoming prayer. You might go directly from one to the next in a single, relatively formulaic prayer sequence, or you might find yourself staying in one phase as it does its interior work with you. Using Cynthia Barjot's labels, the three parts are focus and sink in, welcome, and let go. So let's take them one at a time. Focus and sink in. This is not about indulging bad feelings. Okay? You've been overcome. You're, you're enraged by something. You're angry. You know? Maybe you're jealous. Maybe you're feeling guilty. Maybe you're feeling depressed. Whatever it happens to be. It's not about indulging those bad feelings. It's not about amplifying them or justifying them. But feel the feeling. Allow yourself to become immersed in it. Let it wash over you. Don't run away from it or fight it. Just feel what it's like to be experiencing it. Now, the word feel here can mean either to have a physical experience of touching something or to have a mental experience of encountering an emotion. Connect those two. Feel the feeling or emotion physically. Notice your body. How are you tense or anxious or hot or fidgety or lethargic? As with meditation, you're just observing the feeling, not trying to alter it. The second is then to welcome it. You can only start from where you are, and you can only move forward if you accept where you are. So now affirm the rightness of where you are by welcoming the bad feeling or emotion and acknowledging God's presence in the moment. You do this by literally saying, welcome, bad feeling. You say that to yourself. If you're frozen in fear, say, welcome, fear. If you're hot with rage, say, welcome, rage. And I know it sounds silly, but what you're doing is you're creating a space for yourself between the trigger and the emotion and the response that you're going to give. So you stop, 
You focus on it. You feel it. You become aware of how it affects you physically. And then you welcome it verbally. Now, we're talk- now, note here, we're talking about feelings and emotions, not problems and physical hardships. We're not welcoming illness or injustice. And if it seems you're applying the welcoming prayer to a problem or an illness, focus instead on what negative emotion or feeling is being kicked up. You'll probably be dealing with a variety of fear or anger. There's nothing passive about acceptance. Acceptance merely establishes you in reality. So important. It's grounding you. It's establishing you in the reality of your moment so that you can respond to a situation effectively. If you're terrified about a health issue, that fear may be immobilizing you. Accepting then and realizing the fear may free you to be able to deal with the issue. Solve one problem, solve the next problem, but you can't do that if you're covered over in the emotion. Welcoming allows you to then move, and then you let go, the third piece. There are at least four ways to do this last part. One version uses a fixed statement. You can say these lines no matter what the specific issue, and so you'd actually be saying these to yourself. I let go of my desire for security and survival. I let go of my desire for esteem and affection. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire to change the situation. I mean, that wouldn't be bad to say every single morning in your prayer time, but especially here now. Another version takes just the last line and ties it to the current situation. I let go of the desire to change this feeling. A third alternative is even briefer and names the feeling. I let go of my fear. I let go of my anger. So you welcome and then you let go. And finally, for its added depth and with the same economy of words, God, I give you my fear, my anger, whatever the feeling happens to be. Now, these are just words. You're just talking to yourself, right? And it seems like, well, what's going on here if you're going to do that? But what it's doing, it's slowing you down. It's making you aware that the feeling has overtaken you and there's nothing you can do about that, but it's not real and it doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of your circumstance. You're aware of it, you own it, you welcome it, and then you symbolically let it go. But what this has done is giving you a space between that stimulus and the response to then choose an appropriate reaction. If you're angry, you don't lash out. If you're fearful and paralyzed, you move out and you solve the problem that's right in front of you and the one after that. If you're depressed and you want to isolate, you don't isolate. But until you open up that awareness, you can't do this. The welcoming prayer slows you down in real time and allows you to begin to do that. You know, Like Nehemiah's command. You want to weep. You want to grieve. But I'm commanding you, celebrate. Eat and drink and then give your surplus to the people who don't have it. It's the opposite action that takes us into the new place and allows the joy of the Lord to return. The third is action. We've been talking about action. What action do we need to take? Seeing ourselves on this journey and where are the patterns, aware of the passage and purpose, how do we then take this next action? The action needs to be balanced. It needs to be moderated, grounded in a part of our daily activity, not something extreme. You know, when we're hurt, when we're hit hard, we want to do something extreme. We want to experience God in a big way. We want him to come down out of the clouds and change things for us. We want to have these big emotional responses. But what's really at issue here is just moving through what seems to be insignificant, doing those insignificant things, 
that help us. Because if we try to think, if we think that we have to do big things and connect with God in a big way, it just adds pressure to an already pressured situation. I had one person say, well, I don't have time to do all that, thinking that they had to have all this extra prayer time and, and meditation, all this stuff. And how am I going to fit that into my day? There's a group of Orthodox monks who put together a monastery in upstate New York, and they wrote a book called In the Spirit of Happiness. And what they had to say about this, I think, will help ground it for us. They write, what does a spiritual practice really involve? Wouldn't you say that ultimately it means living life well? Living rightly in all things means correctly perceiving, understanding, evaluating, and acting in regard to ourselves and others, our environment, and all of reality. This demands a lot of self-discipline, but unless we learn how to bring into our spiritual practice the most seemingly insignificant details of our life, we won't achieve the degree of spiritual wholeness that we're capable of. The purpose of spiritual discipline or training is not to make life artificial or miserable through practices that are at odds with healthy human living or which can become an end in themselves. Neither is it a matter of adding more activities to an already cramped schedule. It is only to help us change ourselves so that we can respond to life as consciously and effectively as possible. To use the analogy of athletic training, what we're talking about here is more than just keeping in shape. In fact, by energetically applying self-discipline to living as we should, the range of spiritual practice is as broad as life itself, extending from picking up after ourselves around the house, for example, to assuming the proper responsibility toward those we love. Or have you never thought of listening with complete attention to a person you're having a conversation with as a spiritual discipline? Wow. See what I mean? Our personal practice will consist of an infinite number of practices. Whatever reality calls us to do, however trivial, is matter for moral, spiritual, mental, and emotional, total growth. When we conscientiously strive to do it well and with awareness, unlike the specific demands of job or profession, when it comes to spiritual life, we're always on duty. This is calling to mind Brother Lawrence, who said that sometimes we think we have to come at God with all these artificial ways and means and, and spiritual you know, practices, and he says it's not so. All we have to do is what we normally do all day long, but do it for the sake of God. Do it with the awareness of God's presence, and it becomes a sacred act. It becomes part of this growth. And Jesus is teaching us the same lesson. Take a look back in your bulletins or up on the screens at Luke 10, and this is the story of Martha and Mary. Famous story, you probably all know it, but we're going to look at it a little bit differently. Now, as they were traveling along, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations for the dinner, for the meal, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Seems like a reasonable request. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken from her. Okay, so Martha is rebuked. Mary is praised, but not for the reasons that we probably think. 
When you really look at what Jesus is trying to get across here, it has nothing to do with the action or inaction. It has nothing to do with cooking and serving or sitting and listening. It has everything to do with the way in which those actions are coming forth from the person. You know? The awareness and the presence that Mary has at the feet of Jesus, the sense of the joy of the Lord that she has just listening to him is the better part. But God is just as present, just as present in Martha's kitchen as he is in the dining room where Jesus is speaking. Brother Lawrence taught us that as the cook in his abbey, in his home, where he realized God was just as present there. Martha is rebuked because she is distracted. She's not aware. She's not present. And she's bitter. And she's angry. And she's resentful while she's doing what she's doing. If she could have seen herself as part of that larger picture, seeing that she's doing her part over here so they can do their part there, she is just as much a part of that whole scenario as anybody else who is in her home just playing different roles at different times. And she could have found the joy of the Lord in the kitchen, in the serving. She could have been just as wrapped with attention as her sister was sitting and listening to the Lord. But she was distracted. She was feeling victimized. And so she couldn't move into that place. She was over-identified with her role as hostess, so she couldn't just see her role as a daughter of God just moving into the things that are so important. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. Can we, in our action, bring in the awareness, bring in the acceptance that allows us to just be? That God is everywhere. He precedes us wherever we go. Whatever we're doing is just as sacred as anything else. We compartmentalize our lives into all these little sections. This is where I go to church. This is where I go to work. This is where I play. This is, and we don't connect the dots and see how every one of those is equally sacred. Every one of those is equally pulling us through our spiritual journeys. To accept and embrace our conditions, whatever they are, to bring them in and find ourselves in the midst of them, to do everything that we normally do, but now with awareness, with a sense of purpose, with real intent. When we purposely solve one problem after another, moving through what we need to go through, at the end of all that, we get to go home. In whatever way that, that cycle is bringing us home. We can't manufacture the feelings. We can't manufacture joy in our lives. No matter how much you grunt it out, it's not going to be there. But the way to healing and the way to transformation is living life like this, fully immersed, seeing the larger picture, intent, seeing purpose, and seeing the humor in it all, not taking ourselves too seriously, but allowing ourselves to be a little foolish, allowing ourselves to just be as we are and not worried about everything that goes through our minds so that in the midst of these difficult times we can still look in the mirror and we can find a happy warrior, someone who does what is necessary but can do it with a sense of humor, can continue to do it with the joy of the Lord and we can look in the mirror and we can see a space pirate too. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you so much for giving us everything that we need, for stocking the shelves and the refrigerator with all the provisions that we're going to need on this particular journey. Help us to see that the provisions are really there, that everything that we need is already here. It precedes us so that we can just start to enjoy the ride. We can realize that we can be the first to do everything in our lives. We can take the time to just watch the horizon because we can. And we can have that joy and that sense of adventure with every step we take and each problem we solve. And when things hurt us so badly as they do, realize that this too is part of the purpose, part of the plan that will grow us and take us to a depth and an ability to help others that we just didn't have before. Father, we want to be full. We want to be completed humans. We want to be a part of everything that you have created us to be. So help us to see our way through, to make the choices we need to make, to become aware, to accept, and to act in ways that are always moving towards you. Thank you for loving us, Lord. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.